If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Father, as we continue to worship you this morning, we have set aside this time of our service to open your word, to read, to declare its truths, to think about it, with a desire to apply the word of God to our life, with a desire for your spirit to continue to transform us into the image of your son, using your word. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to have an attitude of submissiveness to your word and what it says, to your glory. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul mentions there that a door was opened for him for ministry. The phrase that's used there means to make possible an opportunity. It kind of has a twofold effect when you think about what's going on here in the context. Number one, this open door enables the evangelist, the one who has the message, to enter with the message of the gospel. That's what it means to have an open door. It's not just that you are there, but the message you are bringing is why this door is open. And it makes possible the entry of that message into the minds and the hearts of the hearers. It doesn't always mean necessarily that they're all going to respond in a positive way, but that's really the idea of this open door for ministry. He would recognize that the door of opportunity was open only after um, he had grasped really the opportunities that were afforded to him by the Lord. That's how he recognized it. He was looking for opportunities to share the gospel of Christ And in that context, this opportunity arose, so a door was opened for him. So when he mentions that, he says that his spirit was not at rest because he did not find his brother Titus. And it says, so I took leave of them. And so that phrase there, so I took leave of them, there's been some discussion among academics and some of the commentaries as to what that really meant, meaning, so did Paul just drop everything and go looking Or did he actually do some ministry, even though he was kind of, you know, had this spirit of unrest and finished up and then went looking? And I don't know what the percentage is of those who are kind of looking at it. It seems to be more consistent with the character of Paul that he did minister. He did take advantage of the opportunity and preach the gospel. But he's giving us his mindset, telling us what took place, in a sense, not giving us the details of his preaching because that just would have been a given that he would have done that and then however that however that open door was opened he would have taken advantage of that so 
I think that's important so that we don't misapply what's being said here because of what we're going to be looking at. Because I believe that Paul is obviously being very open, very honest about what's going on uh, within him, what's going on in his life. I believe that this passage is important because sometimes in Christianity we can paint the wrong portrait for others, for both believers and non-believers. It is, I believe, essential that as believers we not only represent Christ well to the world, but that we represent well what life in Christ is like. And what I mean by that is that we don't want to paint this picture that everything is always wonderful, that God always answers prayer with yes, that believers never get sick, and if they do, they always get healed, and that everything is just great all the time, and we have zero problems. Now, obviously, we don't want to go in the other direction and paint a picture of absolute misery, because that's not true either. But we do want others to recognize the reality of a very real relationship that we have with the Lord that looks like it's, in a sense, normal. That we're living a normal life. Our philosophy, our belief, our faith is very different and carries us not only in a different direction, but enables us to react very, maybe differently than the world does, to various circumstances and events. But we experience the same life circumstances and events as the world does. We're not living in denial to sometimes the great disappointments that come our way. And so it's very important for us to recognize that. And then along with that, I want us to kind of take, take a, a peek then, kind of looking below the surface of, of the words that Paul uses here, of the way he feels. He, he's describing for us this unrest. He is concerned. You can even use the word worry. Now, he's not worrying in the sense that the worrying is dictating the way he makes decisions. At the same time, the unrest in his heart does lead him towards certain decisions. What I'm trying to point out here is, even though we, you know, I know I say this a lot, that we never allow our emotions to dictate what we choose to do. But that never means that our emotions don't help to inform the decision that we make. It's not that we're cutting off the emotions entirely. It is important that we have our emotions uh, in subjection to what the Word of God says and to the truth. But this is not where we, where, we, where we become somehow inhuman. You know, we're not a bunch of, a, it's not a Christianized version of Mr. Spock, if you know who he is. All right, the idea is, is that we are, we are fully realized individuals who are living life and every aspect of life, every aspect of, of how God has created us is working in conjunction as we live life. And that's really very important. It seems, though, that Paul's evangelism was curtailed because of his restlessness. So the idea, there's three things. I'm, this is not original with me. This is, as I looked at what many others said about this, they said that for Paul, this restless spirit was caused by several different things. Number one, it was disheartening because there was disheartening opposition at Ephesus. And because of this, it ended up being a riot. It ended up because of, of, of how things went at Ephesus there was kind of an early departure, earlier than he wanted to go. Okay, it's earlier than he wanted to go. Number two, 
there was a persistent uncertainty and fear concerning the situation at Corinth. Remember, everything keeps going back to this church he's writing a letter to. This church, is, they've got issues. They've had problems. He's been dealing with them. He's visited them before. There's a couple of letters we don't have that he mentions that he, that he kind, of, kind of scathing letters. Uh, and then, of course, praying they would respond well. So he's always curious when individuals would, would come from Corinth. He wanted to know how things were going because he wanted to see the church flourish. He wanted to see them overcome these issues that they were having. He was convinced they could overcome them, but they needed to obey really what the Word of God said. And so he was very concerned about that. That was weighing heavily on his mind. And then, of course, Titus is not where he thinks Titus is going to be. And so that just kind of heightens this, this unrest that he has. He was concerned for Titus, for his, for his travel, for his safety. So what we see here is a very real man who has concerns of life. Paul is not this individual who, you know, because we know of, of Paul. We know that he was, you know, tortured a great deal. Several times he was left for dead. You know, we, we refer to Paul as being a hero, which, which he is. He's a hero of the faith. But he's not this kind of guy that's walking around where he's just unaffected by all these things. This is not, where well, this water off my back. This is not a big deal. That's not Paul. Paul feels things very deeply. So we get a glimpse into, I guess you would say, using today's terminology, his emotional health. He's concerned. This is, you know, it's when, you know when something preoccupies your mind, you can't get rid of it. It's, it's always there in the back of your mind. And for Paul, this is true. It's always there. John MacArthur said this about this uncertainty and about what was going on uh, in the life of Paul. And he says this, Paul's intense concern for the Corinthian church raised troubling questions in his mind as well. Would they affirm their love for him? Would they follow the false apostles? Would they deal with the specific issues he had rebuked them for? You know, the divisions, the strife, the incest, uh, marriage, singleness, divorce, the role of women, idolatry, spiritual pride, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, misuse of spiritual gifts, all this stuff. Paul's heart ached because he did not know the answer to those questions. And as a result, he really had no real freedom to minister. So again, he did minister, but again, he's preoccupied in a sense with things that are going on. So I think that what this does reveal is Paul did have a great confidence in the leading of God. Despite what he was concerned with and going through, he lived his life depended upon God and was convinced as he's following God and following God's lead, what God wants to be accomplished is going to be accomplished. Paul's not checking out because all these things are hard or difficult. He's not saying, oh, I just need time to myself and so everyone just needs to understand and go on some retreat. No, he's, he's staying in the battle. There's, there's a toughness here with Paul so we, we see these things that are going on. He's not a troubled, free individual. And he doesn't allow these things, again, to so dominate his life that it either paralyzes him or maybe even causes him to make decisions that uh, were, in, in essence, I guess you say from a human point of view, out of the will of God. He was living in a moment, a long moment of disappointment. Again, concerned about not finding Titus and Troas, but he could still express thanks to God because he believed that God was not failing him in leading him. There were disappointments again 
over certain details and events, but none of these things caused him to really lose the larger aspect of God's program. He was convinced that God was always leading him, that God was leading his associates, in the triumphant accomplishment of his glorious will. And before I get to that part of it, let me just kind of extrapolate from this a few more things to kind of help us to understand the mindset that Paul had and how that applies to us. So what I want to talk about for just a few moments is, it's a phrase that we sometimes use, we don't always use it in exactly this, this same way, uh, but we, we often talk about having victory. I want to have victory over sin or victory over something in my life, whether you're grieving over something or uh, having a hard time getting over a certain circumstance, whatever it happens to be. And so we sometimes have an unrealistic and maybe even a non-biblical view of what it means to have victory. So the easiest way to illustrate this that I can think of is when there's someone that you love a great deal that you're close to who dies and we grieve over that, which is completely normal. So sometimes what happens is we think that having victory then means that a time comes when we no longer feel sad. That's not biblical. We somehow think that we have fully accepted whatever's taken place as God's will when it no longer affects us negatively. But I don't, that's not in the Bible either. The Bible, I believe, when it speaks of victory, if we're going to use that kind of language, talks about us having really victory in the midst of our troubles, which is very different than this idea that we experience victory only when we've come over them or we've overcome them. And maybe the idea of overcoming is better used in, in, the, in the sense of being in the midst of things, and that would then be this. So when an individual is grieving over the loss of a loved one, we know that normally when it's close to whenever the event took place, that grieving is usually very intense. And, so that, and that pretty much preoccupies the individual's mind and emotions, which would be actually very normal. Through time, there is, first of all, a normal expectation, just in humanity as general, in general, and as Christians, that some of this grieving will diminish, but there still will be ongoing moments of sadness, maybe even tears, etc., and that's normal. This is where the Christian then sometimes messes up by thinking that as long as they are experiencing this sadness or these tears, they, they're not really, in a sense, even pleasing the Lord. Uh, that's not true. Number one, we, will, we should never allow that grieving to cause us to kind of move out of serving the Lord. There may be a time in the beginning, again, where it is intense. Like, in other words, let, let's say that a pastor loses his wife. We would not say to that pastor after two weeks, dude, it's been two weeks, man. You, you, need, to, you, need, to get back to, you need to get back to work. Okay, no one's going to do that. There's, there's an expectation. Whatever that time is, there's an expectation where we, would, where we would even expect that individual to be unable to fulfill certain responsibilities because of what's taking place. Now, I don't know what the magic number is. There is no magic number. We're all different. But we would say that in a year, if he's paralyzed and unable to minister, something is wrong somewhere. But the answer is not that he then is able to eliminate the grief and the tears. It is that as he lives his life in dependence upon the Lord 
and is actively trusting God, he will still experience the grief and tears, but be able to carry on. He will be able to carry on. Now, I don't believe that he will be able to carry on in a sense where he's not affected, because I do believe that the effects may even be very positive. The Lord will use that in his life to, to change him. Maybe he becomes more tender-hearted to others who's, who've lost a loved one. You know, there's, maybe he becomes more sensitive to sin. There's a lot of things that can go on with that. So we're never going to say the individual is unaffected. But we are saying, though, that the individual should not become paralyzed and unable to minister because of this grieving process. So what I'm trying to get across then is that an individual, through this grieving process, and again, this can be applied to any event, not just necessarily the death of a loved one, that the grieving, or there may be some grieving, or you, you, may, you will have remembrances of what took place, and there's a, a, a feeling of sadness that overcomes you that may go on for years. That never means that you're failing the Lord. It never means that. It may be an ongoing reminder we're only able to get through this because of God and because of his grace. So I think what we see here, Paul then emulates that for us in, in this little picture that we have here. That Paul is not saying that, well, I was just unable to minister until I could actually find my friend Titus. He's not saying that I'm unable to minister until all these worries are out of my, out of my mind because that would then mean that I'm fully trusting God. None of that is in there. What he does is in the midst of it, he's bringing out his confidence in God in all of this. Because his confidence is not in himself. He's still living in obedience. He's still moving forward. And he still trusts the Lord implicitly. But he is living with these things. He's carrying these things with him. The Lord, we would say, is helping him to carry these burdens. But he is moving on in life. And so that's kind of the idea that I want to make sure that we recognize uh, as Christians. That, that we are able to function. That there, again, is whenever any event takes place, there's a normal period of time where the intensity, the, the, because of the recentness of whatever happens, you know, it's more overwhelming and that would be normal. But as God's people minister to us, as God the Holy Spirit ministers to us, as we depend upon the Lord, we then move forward. But again, moving forward never means that you are no longer responding emotionally to remembering what has taken place. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you will never have moments of tears and grieving, maybe even very deeply. It doesn't mean that. For some, that might happen. Absolutely. We're all very different. But in that, there is this idea that we will have victory in the midst of these things. And... It's important for us to recognize that. So then when, let's say that you experience that, you're talking to a non-believer. You don't want to give them the impression that whatever it is that you overcome, that now you are just so completely worry-free that it's as if it just never happened. Because I don't think that's, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of non-believers say, well, it sounds like they're on drugs. I, I don't want to forget that individual what we what we want them to understand is that yeah there are times when it's a struggle when we say that we are not diminishing the power of God we are expressing our humanness and our weakness but then when we explain to them how God is carrying us through 
how God has provided his people to minister to us, how God's Holy Spirit, that you say, you know, there's this verse in the Bible which says that there's a comfort that comes from God that just basically defies human understanding. I've experienced that. It's exactly what God says. And God has carried me through the darkest moments when I thought I would never see the light of day. And yet, yet here I am. And I still have joy. And I still look forward to tomorrow and all those things. That, I think, speaks very well of God. And at the same time, it admits to our humanness and our weakness. Becoming a Christian doesn't make us supermen. It doesn't make us that at all. It just really makes us better able to deal with life and cope with life, where we may appear at times to be supermen to others, but we know the truth. So again, verse 14, because I wanted to, to uh, focus then on this phrase that Paul uses here, because it's important that he uses this in the midst of what he's going through. Verse 14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance and the knowledge of him everywhere. Most every commentary of, of any substance where they have, you know, a, where they're dealing a lot with the passage, they all, in one way or another, describe the triumphal procession. They believe that Paul uses that phrase on purpose. A triumphal procession in the minds of many people would be what they had seen the Romans do. The idea is that if a commander in chief won a complete victory over the enemy on foreign soil, and if he had killed 5,000 of the enemy soldiers and gained new territory for the emperor, then that commander was entitled to a Roman triumph. The processional would include the commander riding in a golden chariot. He would be surrounded by his officers. The parade would also dis would, would be a display of the spoils of battle. So the, the, the gold, maybe, maybe even the slaves, whatever they got from overcoming, that would be a part of this parade so that people could see that. Captive soldiers who would probably soon be executed or maybe offered a contract to work in the Roman army uh, would be on display as well. The Roman priests from the various uh, cults that they uh, represented, they would also be in the parade. They would, be, they would be carrying a burning incense and that would be done to pay tribute to the victorious army. The procession would follow a special route through the city and it would end at the Circus Maximus where the helpless captives, or at least many of them, would entertain the people by fighting wild beasts. It was a very special day in Rome when the citizens were treated to a full-scale Roman triumph. So Paul uses that phrase. So we do need to ask ourselves this question. How does that piece of history apply to us today? How does it apply to what we're reading here? Well, I was reading Warren Wiersbe, and he says this. Jesus Christ is our great commander-in-chief. He came to foreign soil, which is the earth, and completely defeated the enemy, Satan. Instead of killing 5,000 persons, he gave life to more than 5,000 persons, to 3,000-plus at Pentecost, and to another 2,000-plus shortly after Pentecost. Jesus Christ claimed the spoils of battle, lost souls who had been in bondage to sin and Satan. In the Roman triumph, the victorious general's son would walk behind their father's chariot, sharing in his victory. And that is where the believers are today, following in Christ's triumph. Because we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. Neither in Asia nor in Corinth did the situation look like victory to Paul, but he believed God, and God turned defeat into victory. 
So Paul uses that phrase in this incredible parade really to help them understand this great triumph and the way that he is looking at what's going on. And even though he sees these little setbacks that cause him concern, he sees the big picture. I think he's excited. It's almost like he's kind of giving himself a pep talk without trying to do that. But it's not some emptiness like, you can do it, stay, you know. He's not doing that. It's look at what Christ is doing. Look at what Christ is doing in this. And that's what leads him then to say this about himself and about us as believers. We are the aroma of Christ to God. So that's why the message is, yes, you do smell. Right? We do smell to others. But we, we have a, there's a fragrance. It doesn't smell good to some people, and it smells good to others. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So the word fragrance here means to emit an odor, whether good or bad. Now, I don't know if, you ever, if you've ever done this before, but um, there's been a few times I've been in a store with my wife, and she will, you know, rub some perfume on and says, what do you think? So I know that people make a lot of jokes about how you should answer your wife in those situations. Uh, I do think we should be honest. Now, the way you express yourself can, can get you in trouble. Uh, so there's been times when she's put something on. Um, and I've told her before, please don't tell me what you think about it, if you want my opinion. And so there's times I say, oh, I say, well, that stinks. That's horrid. And of course, then she says, well, I like it. And I, like any good husband, says, well, if that's what you want. <laughs> right, you know? <laughs> All right, there's other times where I go, but there's other times where I say, well, I like that. Thank goodness she says, I like that too. You know, because if she says, I think it stinks. You know, I might say, then why'd you put it on for? But anyway, so the thing is, is that we're, we're going to smell. And of course, the, the comparison here is one from death to death. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been times, you know, I'm just driving around just Chatham County, which isn't exactly country, uh, but you can tell when you're passing by saying, you know there's a dead animal somewhere. Man, it's, it's bad. I've, 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 I've never smelt uh, human remains. I have heard that once you smell that, you will never forget it, and you will never misidentify a human body for a dead animal in, for the rest of your life. And I'm assuming that's probably in most cases true. But there's a very strong odor that is, in one sense, just overwhelming, to say the least. And so for those who are perishing, that, that kind of describes to you why people have such disgust at times for believers and what we believe. You, you can see it sometimes. You can hear it in the tone of voice. There's absolutely disgust for that for many different reasons. But then for those who are being saved, it's very different. And that's just all that he points out. The contrast that Paul points out here is striking on purpose. So for those who are being saved, that is those who are daily living more and more full and free in the life of Christ and others, you know, there is this fragrance. For those who are perishing, for those who are basically dying daily, daily ruining their lives in the midst of deception, of this incredibly worldly wealth and success, there is this stench. So we have this smell because we carry with us the gospel. 
We, 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 we cause a reaction in the lives of others. And so Paul asked this question, who was adequate for this? Who was adequate to be an aroma of life or death to other human beings? Well, basically the answer is no one but God, but God and his Holy Spirit working in concert with the word of God proclaims that the answer really is no one if he's depending upon his own resources. Basically, it is as the Spirit of God works in you, as you live your life as the Word of God, we then become that. We're not trying to be that to anybody. We're not trying to be offensive or you know, overwhelmingly nice. It's just a natural thing that God is doing. But what we want to make sure, and Paul points this out, that we are not like religious peddlers because they are not sufficient to do that. They, they, they don't carry with them the stench of death, meaning eternal death or the fragrance of life. Only those who are depending solely upon God for his sufficiency can hope to bear this very heavy responsibility. And that's for all of us. That is not just the designated evangelist. In fact, there are designated evangelists who may have incredible numbers. The numbers may not always even be accurate. And we won't talk about that right now, but... The idea is this is the responsibility that all of us believers has. God, when God desires the church, which is every individual, every believer, to, to be this representative of Christ, to, to bring the gospel wherever we go. I want to tell you a story. A story about Christopher, Christopher Columbus. On one of his voyages, he, uh, his, the, the food supply was being depleted. And so they anchored off the, the uh, island of Jamaica. And he was grateful to be given food by the islanders, but as time went on, the gifts of food that were coming began to decrease, and so his crew began to starve. I'm not sure why they were unable to leave once they restocked, but they weren't. And so things began to happen, and his crew was starting to go hungry. Columbus knew astronomy, and he knew that the Jamaican people did not. And so from a book that he was reading on astronomy, he figured out when a lunar eclipse was going to occur. So he called the native chiefs together and told them that God was angry about their selfishness and that he would blot out the moon. At first, the islanders scoffed, but when they watched the night's silver disk slowly become dark, they became terrified, and they immediately began to bring food. Columbus then said that he would pray, and the moon would be restored. And we all know what happens with the eclipse. Now, I can empathize with his circumstances, but the message that he gave as being supposedly from God was dishonest and self-serving. Okay, that's an individual who is using God as, as a religious charlatan. He's peddling the word of God for his own desires. There are many people who do that kind of thing. We, we know about the famous ones who are fleecing individuals of large amounts of money and maybe even power over their lives. But this goes on in day-to-day -day context all the time, where people are, use God or use the Bible for whatever reason to make themselves even, either look better or to look more important or whatever it happens to be. And so that's why it's so important that when it comes to how you and I live, that, that we are living honest lives before people. Going, going back to what I mentioned before, that we live authentically so that then when we do speak of the Lord, we are not trying to glorify ourselves. Because sometimes, maybe not always intentionally, but it can kind of come across that we are bragging about ourselves. 
to others when it comes to how well life is for us or how we're able to handle life. You know, it's funny how people see things. I've told you, I've told you this story before. When I was in Mauritius, I, I tried to be very much aware of cliches and not use them when I was there. And uh, there was one Bible study that I was teaching every week uh, while I was there. And uh, the host, the family, they were very gracious people, uh, wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ. And one, one evening, this was the third evening I was there, uh, I was talking to the host, and he came to me. And he was a very serious man. And he said to me, he said, he said Brother Bob, may, may I ask you a question? So, oh, absolutely. He said, okay. He said, I was just wondering, why is it every time you come to my house, you say, I am good. I recall at no time saying, I am good. But that's exactly how he said it. And I was stunned. I, I said, I, I said, he goes, oh, yes, every night. He says, in fact, just a few moments ago, you said, I'm good. And I'm just racking my brain trying to figure out what is he referring to? What have I said? What have I done? And I said, can you help me? Because I don't remember. So then he said, oh, just a moment ago, my wife offered you some more tea. And you said, no, thank you. I am good. Well, I guarantee you, I did not throw my arms up and say that. But you know what? That's how he was perceiving what I said. Because I said, well, we say, no, nah, I'm good. All he could think of is, here's this man preaching the word of God, preaching about the free grace of God in the gospel, and he keeps declaring that he's good. Why is he doing that? Do you know how hard it is to explain the cliche to somebody who doesn't have any context? It takes a while. So I explained and explained and explained, and thank goodness, he goes, oh, I think I understand, which I was so grateful for. <laughs> All right. So there are times that you and I can come across just like that to others. I'm good, or I am better than you, and you never meant that. That's why, and again, and, and you know, we're, I'm not trying to uh, put any of us down if we come across that way to people, is to be aware of that and to make sure that when we speak well of God, we are speaking well of God and that when we talk about the things that God does in our life, that we make sure that that, that individual doesn't at least have, they have a little more information so they don't begin to think that somehow we're bragging about ourselves, like either we have a special end with God or whatever it happens to be. That we're careful, because the world is sensitive to those kinds of things. And, and remember, they're in their sin, and they're going to misunderstand things anyway. And sometimes they're looking for things to dismiss. So we want to go back to really the simple things that Paul has done. Talked about the unrest that's in his heart, the things that were troubling him, that even in his mind hindered the things that he was doing, but he trusts in God. Because God was the one who was in front. It was God's, it's God's parade. This is what God is doing, and God is the one saving souls. God is the one who's answering prayer, and God is not answering prayer because I'm good. God is answering prayer because he is good. He is answering prayer because of Christ, and so 
you and I are going to have troubles. And so I think it may even be helpful at times when, you know how sometimes things are written across our face. And you may have a friend who's a non-believer, and they may ask you one day, is everything okay? Because you look troubled. Now, I know what I normally do, which isn't good. No, I'm fine. It's all good. Because just, you know, that's just how we live. But maybe it's better. Or to say, well, you know, yeah, yeah, there's some things that, that I'm kind of concerned about. But don't end it there. Immediately you can tack on. I'm just so grateful that I know the Lord. Because even though I'm kind of concerned about this, I, I trust him. And I do know that it's going to work out in the way that he, that he desires. Now, they probably don't want to hear all of that, but tough. They asked you, you get to answer. And you don't have to go on for 30 minutes unless they want you to. But maybe it's better for us to talk about reality. You don't have to go into details. You don't have to go into all the stuff about, you know, because sometimes no one wants to hear that. But we can give them enough information, let them know that, yes, you have read me correctly. I am troubled. But I want you to know that though I'm troubled, I'm not troubled in the way you may think. You wouldn't say it that way. And you share with them about your relationship with the Lord and the very real help that he's given you. Maybe even slip in how God has answered before. What a great opportunity for us to do that. So we all need to be on our guard to make sure we don't misrepresent God or misrepresent God's message uh, to acquire whatever it is we want from others. However, the bottom line is, is that God is authentically involved in our lives. And God will present to you and I open doors of opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. He, and, and is given opportunity for that, that message to be heard by others. We don't know if they're going to respond in a positive or a negative way. But we do know this, that I am the aroma. I have an aroma about me because of the gospel. That is the stench of death to those who are perishing and is the fragrance of life to those who are being saved. What an, what an incredible thing to think about, that we, that we have that impact on others regardless. And so let's pray and ask God to help us to, to not stink or to smell good because that happens as a result of the gospel. But to recognize those open doors, to be maybe a lot more authentic, to recognize and admit our own weaknesses or human frailties and to declare the triumph that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, and love. Father, the more that we read about Paul, really the more incredible this man seems. We've always known, Lord, that he was a man that was completely sold out to Christ and that he was willing to give his life for Christ because he was called upon to do that really, to, almost to the point of death several times. And yet, Father, we, we do see his humanity. And we remember the words that he said, which was never to follow him, but he said to imitate him. And Father, he said that knowing that if people imitated him, they would know you. That's a, that's a profound thing, Father. So I pray that as we think about this passage, as we think about our lives, as we think about those that we interact with on a, on a regular basis, <coughs> Father, we ask that you would raise our level of awareness, maybe our self-awareness. Help us become more aware of those around us and circumstances that we find ourselves in and circumstances that others find themselves in. May we, Father, live our life and speak in such a way that truly 
brings glory and honor to you in every way. And Father, even though we know that we may be the stench of death to, to some, Father, we ask that you would allow us to see the times that we are the fragrance of life to those who are being saved. How wonderful, Lord, that is. We are so grateful, Father, for that. Again, we thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. We thank you for always being there for us. We thank you, Father, for answering prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you do all these things for us because you are good. And Father, we ask that you would help us to glorify you in all that we do. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.